Acts chapter 21 this morning. As we press on in our study of the advance of the kingdom that began in this first century church and continues today through this local church and every other gathering of believers around our city, our country, and our world as they spread the good news. I would invite you to join us in the equip hour as well at 9 o'clock. Some good studies happening for the young people, for the teens, and then the adults here. Read the book of Hebrews and be prepared for the conversation we're having around the Word of God there. Uh, This morning we had some helpful studies, not only in theology, but in interpreting the Bible. Uh, And that's what that equip hour is for, to see not only truth, but how did we get there? We'll be doing some of that this morning as well as we study Acts chapter 21. The opening line to Bill O'Reilly's historical fiction book entitled Killing Lincoln describes the 16th president as, quote, the man with six weeks to live. The story is told with a continual reminder of the countdown to the quickly approaching assassination. And so for the whole reading of the book, you will be reminded of how many weeks, how many days, how many hours the president had to live. As you read the book, you get caught up in the story, but you're unable to forget the inevitable ending. It looms over each chapter. You know how the story ends. And by knowing the end, it adds this weight to each one of the decisions that leads Lincoln to stay in Washington and eventually to choose to go to Ford's Theater instead of another engagement on that fateful April evening. We have a similar storyline and a similar telling of a story in Acts chapter 21. Paul is coming to the end of his third missionary journey. And because we know the rest of the book of Acts and history, we know that Paul will soon be arrested, taken into custody, bounced between several imprisonments, and then be executed, ultimately under the tyranny of Emperor Nero. And like that Lincoln story, we follow Paul and his decisions in Acts 20 and Acts 21 while feeling the weight of this awareness that going to Jerusalem will mean the end of missionary journeys, will mean the end of his ministry, will mean eventually the end of his life. Several themes are brewing in this account of this journey ending and this looming arrest. These themes are significant in and of themselves, and yet when they combine in this perfect storm in Acts 21, they become a real challenge to our biblical thinking and maybe even at times to our faith. The merging themes we're going to be considering are, one, the will of God. That alone is a pretty daunting subject, whether it be for major decisions of life or everyday living. And now we're going to add another theme to that that is equally daunting, 
and that is the reality of suffering. And so this week, and Lord willing, next week, we will see how these themes come together in this chapter in the ministry of Paul, and then seek to make application to our lives as well. Today we begin to consider doing God's will in the face of suffering. Good people, loving God and serving God, and yet they suffer. And at times suffer greatly. So we need the help of God's word to us in Acts 21 as we see Paul doing God's will in the face of suffering. Now you heard the text read a moment ago. And there's a lot of places that were listed there. If you would go to your Bible map, you'd see the third missionary journey, and he'd be coming down the coast of what we think of as modern-day Turkey. He's going to cross the Mediterranean, past the island of Cyprus. The text even gives us that nautical feel. It was on the left there. They could see it off in the distance. And they're heading across the Mediterranean back toward what we know of as Israel finishing there in Caesarea, that huge port city of Paul's day. His plan is to go to Jerusalem. We've seen that now in a couple of chapters where Paul has alluded to this desire and plan to head to Jerusalem. At one point, even giving us a date stamp, he wanted to get there by the time of the Feast of Pentecost. But knowing the danger that awaits him, because we can see further in the text, the question arises, was Paul right or wrong to go to Jerusalem? Was this boldness to preach the gospel or was this recklessness? Was this obedience to The Great Commission, or was this foolishness to ignore the warning of godly counsel? Was Paul right or wrong to go to Jerusalem? That's the kind of question that makes us start thinking about what is the will of God? And should we factor in risk and danger to determining God's will? And what is the place of friends and counselors saying, I don't think you should do this? These are all factors in the study of the will of God. And then we also add to it the reality of suffering, what Paul's going to face. We realize we have some challenges as we think through this text in answering this question, was Paul right or wrong to go to Jerusalem? We have two goals in answering the question. One of them is to see how to study the Bible in order to answer these kind of questions. How do we interpret the Bible? How do we read not just a verse, but its context and the surrounding chapters and and make sense of what we see there? And then, of course, our other goal is to actually learn something from this very account, this historical record of Paul wrestling with doing God's will in the face of suffering. What do we learn from that? I want us to notice first the reason for this question. Why are we even asking, was it right or wrong for Paul to go to Jerusalem? Because generally, when we read stuff in the Bible, we just assume that that was the right thing to do. 
We didn't have this question earlier when it said Paul went from this city to that city or went to Ephesus or on to Macedonia. We just kind of assumed that was right. So why are we asking if this was a good decision to go to Jerusalem at this point? Well, the simple answer is found in chapter 21 and verse 4. When our text says, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Luke is obviously again traveling with Paul because we have that we pronoun. He's saying, we did this. We landed at Caesarea. We went to see the disciples at the church there. And through the Spirit... They warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And just a few verses later, we have this encounter with this prophet named Agabus, verse 11, who bound himself with Paul's belt and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So twice in chapter 21, people with some connection to the Spirit's information are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and yet Paul is going to Jerusalem, will go. That's why we have the question brewing, should he have not gone? Should he have changed his plans? Would wisdom demand that having heard from all these counselors, he say, you know, I hadn't thought of that. I should reconsider. Did Paul ignore good counsel? Is Paul too big on himself as an apostle, and did he arrogantly press on and insist on his own way? Was he right or wrong to go to Jerusalem? Well, let's stop asking and get to the answer. Here's my answer to the question. Paul was absolutely right to go to Jerusalem. If you were thinking the answer should be wrong, well then let me engage you in the next couple of points here. This is a matter of interpretation. By that I mean the text never says the words, Paul wisely ignored his friends and he was right to go to Jerusalem. But if this is a matter of interpretation, then we must find support for our answer, if yours is the same as mine or not, from the Bible text. So let me walk you through ten reasons that support the answer that Paul was right to go to Jerusalem. Now there's not ten bullet points listed on your outline. You may write these down. You may pick a few of your favorites just to remember that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the text to to pile up data to make the case that this was the right decision. But I think we can do that. Ten reasons that Paul was right to go to Jerusalem. Number one, and again, we take these collectively. Any one of them you could say, well, that doesn't really win the argument by itself. It, It really does in Scripture. Uh, When scripture seems to leave us in a place of having to interpret, usually that means we need to collect data and together see that that makes a strong 
interpretation. Number one, Paul's ministry was characterized by the Spirit's leading. In other words, do we have any confidence that Paul relies on the Spirit when he's doing what he does? Acts 9.17, at his conversion, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 13 and verse 4, his missionary work began, it says, when he was sent out by the Holy Spirit. Acts 13 and verse 9, as Paul engaged with antagonists, it says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. In Acts 16, specifically regarding his travels, it says he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Later, a few verses, it says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go to that place. And then in deciding where to go, it says when Paul had seen a vision about where he should go. So clearly we have a pattern of Paul living his life and carrying out his ministry with clear direction from the Holy Spirit. That's not to say in chapter 21, he couldn't have stepped out of that Spirit's leading. We all know what that is like. But we are establishing that in choosing where to go, Paul has very readily recognized what we might call closed doors or open doors. Number two, Paul's reasons for going to Jerusalem were good. In chapter 20, verse 24, he says he's going there to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In chapter 24, a few chapters later, verse 11, he says he was going to Jerusalem to worship there with the saints. And he also says in chapter 4, or chapter 24, that he was bringing alms to the saints in Jerusalem. Some of the offering had been sent ahead that was collected from the Gentile Christians for the persecuted church in Jerusalem, but apparently Paul is bringing more of that offering. Again, his reasons are good, but this may not alone make the case. Just because we have good intentions doesn't mean our action is right, but we are saying when looking at the text, there's nothing wrong with Paul saying, I should go to Jerusalem. There were good reasons for it. Number three, Paul knew the Spirit's constraint to take this specific trip. We saw that in chapter 20, verse 22. Paul says, and now behold. That word behold means, we, we might say, like, I'm serious about this. Like, I, I mean it. Like, because what we're about to say after that might seem odd or startling. So Paul says, and now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul says this may seem like an odd move, but I'm going to Jerusalem. And I don't know how that's going to end up. I just know that everywhere I've gone, the Spirit has told me my ministry will be characterized by hardship. But note that verse carefully because that's going to be foundational to helping us wrestle with the text in chapter 21. We had also seen back in chapter 19 
verse 21, that Paul was resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So twice we've been told that Paul has the Spirit's constraint or leading to go to Jerusalem as we lead up to those texts in chapter 21. Adding to what we just read, number four, the Spirit had revealed awaiting danger. We saw that in Acts 20, 23. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisons and afflictions await me. So he knows the Spirit's plan is to go to Jerusalem even though there may be hardship. This, this needs to be filed away so that later on in chapter 21, when the people hear of hardship and say, don't go, Paul has every right to say, you're talking nonsense. I already knew about the hardship. Hardship doesn't factor into my plans. The Spirit already told me I would suffer hardship. So the, the argument that suffering awaits is really no argument at all. The Spirit had made that known to Paul. And not only in this specific revelation, verse 23, this Holy Spirit testimony that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but argument number five is this. Danger was a part of Paul's commission to ministry. When we go back to chapter 9 and see Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus to persecute the followers of Jesus. He's blinded and converted and he stumbles into the help of Ananias. And the Lord said this to Ananias about caring for the apostle Paul. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Unlike some calls to ministry, Paul's call came with, with, the, with an addendum that said, And this calling will always be marked by suffering, by hardship, by intense persecution. You can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 the extended list of Paul's hardships and sufferings that he endured for the sake of the gospel. The point is, danger from the very start of Paul's Salvation, conversion, and commission, suffering was always a part. It's nothing new. Argument number six, that Paul was right to go to Jerusalem. Paul doesn't consider this decision to be a mistake. In the coming chapters of Acts, he has two speeches that he makes, two opportunities. One is in Acts 23 before the Jewish council, and then in chapter 24 before the Roman governor Felix. And in both cases, he is recounting how it is he came to have to make a defense of himself. Why is he under arrest? Why is he being interrogated? Why is he being held? And in both cases, he speaks of a clear conscience before God and before man in the way that he acted in leading up to his arrest. 
It's the exact opposite response of what we would expect if he had made the wrong choice and had acted stubbornly and gone on to Jerusalem. We would expect him to say then, yeah, I should have listened to those folks and I had to repent of that arrogance. But instead he says, I'm here to defend the gospel and the reason I'm here, I can look back on that path and with a clear conscience say, I've done nothing wrong. It's only for the gospel that I'm suffering. So Paul doesn't consider this a decision that was in error. Number seven, Paul later considers or describes this outcome as a gospel good, as a gospel benefit. We read that in Philippians chapter one. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You see, Paul's writing Philippians under some kind of imprisonment or house arrest. That is one of those imprisonments that resulted from going to Jerusalem. He really wouldn't again be a free man as we've seen him travel before. But he says that imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. And then he explains it. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, this prisoner tucked away in some Roman dungeon or in some under house arrest later, he says all the guard of the Roman Empire has heard about Jesus Christ not just a prisoner of some persecuted religious sect, but no, he says, my imprisonment is for Christ. That's what they have heard. And he goes on to say, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul, enduring suffering and hardship in the will of God, rather than suppressing the witness of others, actually inflamed it, motivated it, inspired it. Because in their minds, they started seeing, oh, that's what Christ is worth. He's worth anything. They became confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. When things went really bad, when Paul testified of Christ, and he goes to prison, that made the church think, this is a great idea to talk about Christ. It doesn't seem to fit with our way of thinking if we think suffering is bad and suffering must be outside of the will of a good God. Our text is going to walk us this week and then, Lord willing, next week into an even fuller understanding of suffering in the will of God. But don't forget this Philippians text that suffering poured out on one who was in the will of God actually encouraged the church in the face of suffering rather than squash it. Argument number eight that Paul was right. The people cannot press their conclusions on Paul and they yield to the will of God. Chapter 21 and verse 14. And since Paul he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. 
Now, I'm assuming this isn't just a K-sera-sera, kind of a hands-off attitude, whatever will be, will be. But they, they are truly recognizing, okay, I cannot rightly press my argument on Paul not to go. Therefore, we relent and we recognize that the will of the Lord must be preeminent. It's not a Paul against us. It's not he's right or we're right. It, what is the will of the Lord? Let that be done. This leads us to the crucial work of interpretation. Argument number nine, trying to establish that Paul is right to go to Jerusalem, we must consider what the Spirit actually said. We have three verses to consider. Chapter 20 and verse 22, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit and bases that on verse 23, a testimony of the Spirit to him. Second passage we have to consider, chapter 21 and verse 4, where these disciples through the Spirit were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. How can Paul say, I'm going constrained by the Spirit, yet the brothers are saying, don't go, and the text says that message is through the Spirit. One of them has to be right. One of them has to be very wrong. So what do we do? Has our Bible just like contradicted itself? And both are claiming Spirit information and and saying this is what we should do. Well, our third text is helpful. This text about Agabus the prophet. Because Agabus comes and he actually quotes the message from the Spirit. Look at verse 11. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, and he gives the message of the Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. That message is really clear. Agabus simply says, this is what the Spirit says, and he gives us the exact words. There's a rule of interpretation of your Bible when you're studying that says, You use what is clear to help you make sense of or interpret what seems unclear. So when you read something that's confusing, and we've read Paul saying, I'm constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and the next chapter, the brothers through the Spirit said, don't go. I'm thinking, was Paul right or wrong? We have a conflict. But we have in our context here, some help, because the text tells us exactly what the Spirit said through the prophet Agabus. And we use what is clear to help us with what is unclear in verse 21, verse 4. So these three texts all have information revealed with a connection to the Holy Spirit, right? 
The first one is Paul, who's describing what the Spirit said. But he does say the Spirit testified these things. And the third text is quoted by Agabus, and it reveals the Spirit's actual message. So we really don't have any question, except what does chapter 21, verse 4 mean? That the brothers, through the Spirit, urged him not to go. That's really the only question. What did they mean? What, what is that verse saying? Because chapter 20 and 22 is pretty clear. Paul's saying, I know the Spirit is constraining me to go. He testified to me. Agabus says, the one who goes to Jerusalem will suffer, but the Spirit never said, don't go. It's clear. Let's use the clear then to wrestle with what's going on in 21.4 when the disciples, through the Spirit, are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. We conclude that in that text in chapter 21, verse 4, those disciples have the exact same information that Paul has in chapter 20 and that Agabus has just a few verses later. We should conclude the Spirit has said the same thing. Going to Jerusalem is going to be walking into danger and suffering. But with that information, our text says, through the Spirit, or we could say that that preposition could also be because of the Spirit, they said to Paul, don't go. Through the Spirit makes it seem almost like some kind of inspiration, but when we think of it more fully as through the Spirit or because of the Spirit, because of what the Spirit said, because of the information the Spirit revealed, they said to Paul, don't go. I submit to you, they drew a faulty conclusion that many of us make. Because when life gets hard, we're not often first to say, God is faithful and his mercies are new every morning. We're often like, Lord, why are you doing this? And it betrays the exact spirit of these disciples, a confusion that if I do the will of God, surely life won't be so hard. But that's not the case. Through the spirit, they knew going to Jerusalem would be bad news. And their conclusion is don't go. But that's not what the Spirit told Paul in chapter 20, and it's not what Agabus the prophet says when he quotes the Spirit's message. Their conclusion is that if danger and imprisonment await Paul, then he should avoid Jerusalem. And in and of itself, that's not a bad idea. It's not sinful to think, well, I don't want to just sign up for suffering. But I wonder if they were thinking, surely it would not be God's will for the great apostle to end his ministry by being arrested by Jews and Romans. We'll consider more of that next week. But note clearly that none of these three verses indicate that the Spirit said, do not go. That's our conclusion, kind of, jumping on the backs of what the disciples said, that information they had through the Spirit, because of the Spirit, they told Paul, don't go. 
I submit to you, Paul was right to say, I'm constrained by the Spirit to go. And the final argument that Paul was right comes in chapter 23 and verse 11. Paul is in between his defenses. He's already been in court once with the Jews. Now he's going to stand before the Roman governor. In chapter 3, in verse 11, the text says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, there's something there that is affirmative. Again, does this seal the deal that Paul was right? Well, it just doesn't seem to imply anything other than, yes, what you did in Jerusalem was good and right, and you're going to do more of that when you get to Rome. It seems as though the Lord is cheering him on to take courage. Why? Maybe Paul had the same thought some of us would have had. Maybe I shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. Have you ever thought you were doing God's will and you get a little bit down the path and you think, this was a bad idea. I knew I shouldn't have done this. Well, no, you didn't know that. And God comes to Paul and says, take courage. Don't be discouraged without courage. Instead, remember, what I had you do in Jerusalem is what I'm going to have you do in Rome. This is still the plan. It seems to be a confirmation that coming to Jerusalem was a right step in God's plan for kingdom advance. Kingdom advance in the face of suffering. I imagine I wouldn't have to preach with as much logic or explanation if I were preaching to the persecuted church in India. I wouldn't have to convince them that, really, sometimes the will of God's going to mean you suffer. They, they would probably just get it. They would know exactly what's going on. They might see it with an eye of experience and real life. But at times we struggle to think, what, it, was it really a good idea to curtail the ministry of the Apostle Paul? Look at all the good he was doing. But it just betrays the fact that we aren't thinking like God thinks about how to build his church. What do we learn from this this week before getting into Paul getting to Jerusalem and facing that suffering? Some concluding applications. Number one, we must daily cultivate a heart that is submissive to the Holy Spirit. I guess my point is we can't wait until there's big decisions to make and then suddenly think we're going to break open our Bible and prove to God that we're really serious and, and we really want to know his will and then get kind of to wrestling with what is the will of God. When the reality is the will of God is to walk with him every day in a spirit of submission so that the big decisions may not even feel as big because it's just another step in following what the Lord has. But if we're distant from God and from that intimacy with the Spirit's control in our lives, 
It's no wonder that big decisions seem like big decisions because we're, we're totally unsettled. We don't know what this feels like, this uncertainty, this living by faith. And what we really mean when we say we want to know the will of God is, I want, I want concrete steps to land on. I don't want to live by faith. Lay it out for me so that I can see it, and then I'll decide if it's a good idea. But that's not how it works. Daily cultivate a heart that is submissive to the Spirit. In little ways, step out in faith. You see, it takes faith to use a soft answer to turn away wrath. Because we're really good at mustering up a defense. And either with our demeanor or with our logic, we can overpower, we can win, we can prevail. Or at least put up a good fight. But it takes submission to the Spirit's leading to know, is this the moment to use logic or reason or love and forgiveness? How do I speak or discipline my child this time? That's wrestling with the will of God today. Where is my heart today? We probably all have the general trajectory in mind, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But the reality is the will of God comes to us in the moments of life. You just dealt with that kid two minutes ago. Lord, how do I respond this time? Do they need to see the wrath of God? Or do they need to see some kind of compassionate approach? Maybe there's a place for explanation and not just the stark discipline. But that's the Spirit's work in a heart that is daily submissive. How do I respond to a spouse or friend in, in this conversation? We know how to treat our spouses in general. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But what does that mean moment by moment? We know we are to exhort one another and comfort one another and all these things friends do. But where is my friend right now and what they're saying to me? They're pouring out these woes. Do they need the, the old, you know, slap in the face to shake out of that? Or do they need to be lifted up and carried a little bit down the path? Do they need the stern word of, hey, you're not trusting the Lord? Or do they need a, a softer, kinder, loving expression? Are we wrestling daily with submission to the Spirit? Because I think we would all agree he would be perfectly capable of leading us in every one of those moment-by-moment decisions. You just heard a sermon or read a blog or a po- listened to a podcast. Are you asking, God, what do you want me to do with that today? What do I do with this? Or is it just encyclopedic knowledge so that we can spout it off to someone else? Cultivate a heart of daily submission. As we came to this text in 21 to wrestle with, was Paul right or wrong to do this? What we saw was this isn't a point in time. This is a lifetime of Paul's ministry relying on the Holy Spirit. I honestly wonder if some of you might be a little spooked 
if you went through the rest of your day asking the Holy Spirit how you should act or respond? Would it be weird to you to ask the Spirit if today is the day to watch the Chiefs game? (laughs) Would it be weird to you to ask if tomorrow, you know, you should approach the boss about that certain situation or at least ask the Spirit to govern the way you do that? could we maybe start developing that habit of whispering or those even just prayers in the mind of asking the Spirit to to lead, to guide? We know that language is in the Bible, but does it mean something to us daily, hourly, moment by moment? You might be in the lobby afterwards. Would it be weird to think this person's telling me about their sorrow Spirit, is there any word that I could give to them? That's the kind of ministry Paul lived. And that's why I don't think he was in great turmoil when people pled with him and said, don't go, this looks bad. And he could say, I know. What are you doing? You're killing me, man. You're breaking my heart. Why are you weeping? He says, I know what it means but I have to go. There was a settled confidence that comes from that daily submission to the Spirit. Second application. Work to define God's will by his revealed word. It was our greatest help today. Should Paul go or not? Well, what did the Spirit actually say? And the Spirit said, it's going to be bad. He's going to be bound and imprisoned. But that's exactly what the Spirit had told Paul in chapter 20. Get down to what has been revealed. What has God said? You say, but that doesn't help much when I'm trying to make this big decision. Should I marry this person or should I take this job? Should I move across the country and leave friends and family and church? Where does the Bible tell me what to do? I'm simply saying, start with the revealed word. You see, the spirit, that's application number one, will use the word to guide your thinking, which will ultimately then determine your steps. And I'm not saying there's no place for talk about godly and wise counsel. But remember... Godly and wise counsel is only godly and wise counsel if it's godly and wise. So ask your counselors, ask yourself, how does God's word support what you're telling me? Too much counsel starts with, well, I just think it would be good if you would, why should I care what you think? And I know that sounds harsh. I have those moments. Too much decision-making begins with, well, I think God wants me to. Why? Why do you think that? Challenge people to get to, give me something revealed by God about him, about how he wants us to live, that at least is the foundation on which you're building this decision. I get it, moving across the country, taking a job, taking a spouse. These things aren't spelled out in the word with addresses and names. 
But there are foundations there that we should be able to point to. To say that, I think it would be good if you did this. Or God wants me to. Because frankly, people's thoughts, your thoughts, my thoughts, don't hold any weight over anyone else. You can say whatever you think. You can think I should do something. I can think you should do something. But since when are we wrestling with the will of Adam or the will of you? Start with the revealed word of God and build on that wisdom that leads us to make the host of decisions whose answers are not found in literal words of Scripture. Define God's will by his revealed word. You might not like it when somebody asks you, where are you getting that? Like, is that just from your experience? Or do you have any, anything in the Bible that sounds like what you said? That sounds good, and I feel like I want to listen to that. But what is that based on? Because sometimes you're going to find that together you'll get to the answer, even if that person doesn't have it. They may be speaking wise and godly counsel. But it's worth remembering, why is it wise and godly? What is it based on? Whether you talk to friends, parents, family members for counsel, whether you talk to pastors and elders, whether you would see a Christian counselor, the mandate for defining good and godly counsel would be, where are you getting that in the Bible? So define God's will by his revealed word. Number three, face uncertainty and even known hardships with faith. When the spirit, that's application number one, guides you with the word, that's application number two, then you have to be ready to move forward in faith. That And and that's easier said than done. I understand that. Because the very nature of moving forward in faith is, I don't feel like I know where that foot's going to land in that next step. And that's why the Psalms say, tuck away in your mind, he orders those steps. It's there. The the sure footing is there. But you step out in faith. Faith uncertainty, and even known hardships with faith. If the Spirit, by the Word, is guiding, or as Paul said, constraining, then step out in faith. But how many times do we say things like, well, I I thought about saying something to them. Why didn't you? What kept you from doing that? Generally, it's thoughts like, but I didn't know how they would take it, or I didn't know what, and and we were predicting outcomes, which is the opposite of faith. Maybe you were uncertain because you didn't ask the Spirit for help. But I want you to see that in so much of daily life, if we would be submissive to the Spirit and knowledgeable of the Word, then we might be living more by faith and doing a lot of things that, feel kind of strange to us, but they're really biblically defined as normal Christian living, spirit-led Christian living, 
Bible-based Christian living, faith-acting Christian living. Knowing God's will is tough enough, but especially when we add to it this whole realm of suffering. We need to believe in those moments God's words to us. And the promise we have from God is that his spirit will take the word and will always lead us in this path of faith through whatever trials come. And so ready yourself today. Ready yourself from Psalm or from Acts 21. Yield to the spirit. And maybe as we close in prayer, maybe as we sing, your simple prayer would be like, Lord, I don't remember the last time I've used the word yield in prayer. But right now, my heart is yours. I want to I marry. I want to parent. I want to work. I want to shop. I want to be entertained in a way that pleases you this week. So yield to the Spirit. Then know God's word. That's how you ready yourself to do God's will in the face of suffering. Get into the word. And then follow in faith. Step out and do what God's word has said to do. It's the best way to live, Paul would tell us. Even in his suffering, he's going on about how this, is, this has worked out great for the gospel. And he would go on to say, for me to live is Christ. How do we do that? Yield to the spirit, know God's word, and follow in faith. So, Heavenly Father... Use this text. Might feel a little obscure to us. Some travel plans and a conversation about whether or not to go to Jerusalem. But it opens the door to us to understand that at times our faith is frail at best. Suffering can easily overwhelm us. Would you meet us in our weakness? And this morning, teach us and encourage us down the path by this, your word to us. May we leave here in a good place, a yielded place, ready to live by faith as you've called us to do. Help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.